Well, good morning, Seabreeze. It's good to see everyone today. As Kathy mentioned, we've been looking at a series of messages entitled Peace Under Pressure. We're considering how it is that we can experience God's peace in the middle of the pressures that we face in life. Our guide has been the New Testament book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Today we're going to talk about the kind of effort that God's peace requires. Now, normally you don't think of effort and peace in the, the same context. Webster defines peace as a state of tranquility or quiet. And so we tend to think of peace as a kind of passive condition, something that we um, arrive at, a, a state, as Webster calls it. But God's peace is very different than normal peace. God's peace is, is more of an active endeavor. It's not something that we just wait for it to kind of come over us or pray and ask kind of a a sense or a state to arrive at us. It's something that we we have to pursue. Last week, if you were here, we talked about the pressure that we all face to to live a truly profitable life. And we examined how God measures profit and loss very differently than we do. And at the end of that message, Paul had stated in the verses that we looked at his desire to live the kind of life that really is profitable in, in God's categories of profit. And then he says this in the next verses in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is is using the imagery of a a runner in a race who has one objective, and that is to win the prize. Runners in a race view pressure very differently than people who are just out for a walk, generally strolling around. Runners expect pressure, and that's because in a race, there's a lot of effort and a lot of strain, not only to finish the race, but especially if you, you want to win the race. And so when they hit the proverbial wall or they, their body tells them that they can't go any further... Uh, they don't just slow down. They don't just stop. They know that they need to press through whatever the pressure is that they're feeling. Now, when it comes to life, we tend to approach life as kind of a, a stroll or, or a walk in the park. It is really the kind of life that, that we want. And so whenever we hit a wall of pressure, we tend to be really shocked by the pressure that we're experiencing. And, and we treat it as something highly abnormal. But this life is, is not a walk in the park. It really is, kind of like Paul's describing it here, it's, it's a race. It's a race against sin, our own sin, uh, the sin that other people uh, do against us. It's, it's a race against uh, time as, as we continue to get older. And so when we, whenever we hit the walls of pressure, there is one thing that we must do, and that is forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead. Now, that doesn't sound like one thing, does does it? That sounds like two things, forgetting what's behind and straining towards ahead. The idea is that it, it's one overall effort that requires both a do and a don't. It looks something like this. We're going to show a picture of, of a race, runners straining towards the, the finish line. Uh, they are in one effort. They're, they're in one race. It's one overall effort. But there's something that they're all doing. And there's something that they're all not doing. They are all straining toward what's ahead. And I don't know if you notice it, but none of them are looking back. They're not even glancing to the side. Their gaze is fixed straight ahead because they're in a race. Now, you might look at this and say, they don't look very peaceful. I thought we're talking about peace under pressure. That that looks like a lot of strain. And it is. 
But you see, you know, in a world that's fallen, in a world that's, that's full of sin, both ours and the sin of other people, and with the clock of time ticking down the days of our life, this really is what peace looks like in this world. Now, in heaven, peace will most likely appear to be much more tranquil than this. But now, if we want God's peace in the middle of the pressure of life, this is the, the look, this is, this is the effort that is required to press on. And to press on, there, there is one thing that we have to keep forgetting, and one thing that we have to be sure that we never forget. We're going to look at both of these this morning. First of all, the one thing that we need to keep forgetting, we, we need to forget the past. Do forget the past. Whenever an athlete runs in a race, they, they first take off you know, whatever sweats they're wearing, if, if they're wearing a jacket, any other uh, extra clothing, they, they take that off before the race, because in a race, extra weight is not your friend. Now, in the race of life, it is our past that clings to us like heavy clothing, dragging us down and, and slowing us up. Now, Paul is here not talking about some kind of general amnesia about who you are and the important events of your past, the important people of your past. He's talking about a very specific kind of forgetting. Now, there are two parts of our past that keep clinging to us and weighing us down and anchoring us in the past, and they keep us from pressing forward in life and really making progress in our relationship with Jesus. The first is our past sin. The past sin of our life and the sin of other people's lives keep dragging us down. Whenever sin occurs, it, it never just remains as an isolated event that occurred in history, in the past. It is a sin that keeps dragging us down. If it's a sin that we did, then it follows us into the future in the form of guilt. We keep feeling guilty about what we've done. If it's sin that's been done to us, then we drag it into the future in the form of bitterness. We, we continually rehearse and are upset and exercised over the wrong and the hurt that's been done to us. That's called bitterness. And guilt and bitterness have the same exact effect. Both of them draw our attention to the past. And they, they keep us stuck and mired in the sin of the past, whether it's sin we did or sin that was done to us. So how exactly are we supposed to just forget that? Honestly, how, how can you forget the past? You can't just pretend that the wrong that you did didn't really happen or that the wrong that someone did to you didn't really hurt. I mean, it did. Those things did happen. And depending on how significant your wrong was or how significant the wrong done to you was, it's, it's just impossible to pretend like it never happened and to completely put it out of your mind. We just can't go back in time and undo what's been done. It, it really has caused damage. So how do we forget the past? Well, we, we need a solution, an answer to the wrong of the past, to the sin, both our sin and the sin that's been done to us. And Paul describes the solution, the answer to the sin of the past in this way. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The question is, what is that? What is the that for which? In other words, why is it that Jesus reaches out to take hold of people like you and me. Well, the reason Jesus does that is to pull us out of the pit of our sin. We're, we're all stuck in this pit in different forms and in different ways, but we're all stuck. And Jesus takes hold of us for that reason, to, 
to pull us out of the pit of our own sin. Jesus really is the, the arm of God that descends from heaven into a sinful world to grab a hold of those who will just lift up a hand in his direction and take hold of his. Now, when someone decides to do that, Jesus begins to pull them out. But we're not free of it yet. In fact, we never get completely free of it in this life. And that's why Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Let let me be clear, I'm not free of sin. But in Christ, our future now is set. We, We are, first of all, forgiven for the past wrongs that we've done. And our future now is certain, not because of our moral efforts, but because of the strength of his grip. Notice whose grip is doing the holding. It's Christ Jesus who, who took hold of me. He's, he's the one that really grabbed a hold of me. Now, it may, it may look from our perspective like we were the ones that came to the point where we realized we, we needed help, and we were stuck in our own sin, and we reached out and we decided to, to follow Jesus Christ as, as we figured out that he was the only one who could save us. But if you could see the ex- entire exchange in, in its scope and in its, its entirety, you, you would realize that it was really not so much you reaching out and grabbing hold of Jesus. It was more like you kind of lifting a little finger in his direction and Jesus diving into the depths of your life to take hold of you and pull you up. But having done that, having, having reached out and having Jesus grab a hold of us, the, the, this, the problem is, is we still sin. As Paul said, I, I'm still not perfect. I still do wrong, and people still do wrong to me. So if we still sin, even after we've grabbed a hold of Jesus, then, then we just need to be honest about it. We need to confess it, ask for forgiveness. If there's someone that we've wronged and it's appropriate for us to go to them, then we need to ask them to forgive us. If there's uh, some damage that we've done and there's ways for us to repair it, then we need to make good on what we've done wrong and we need to repair the damage. But after we've done that, we need to let go of the past. We need to move on and accept the forgiveness that we've been given in Jesus Christ, whether or not the person that we wronged or people we wronged, we can even talk to or whether they've forgiven us or not. Because to to stay in the guilt, to wallow really in the guilt of our sinful past is to insult the strength of his grip, is to say that it's not enough to pull us out of the past that we must do something, we must feel bad enough before we can be free of it, or we must do enough deeds of penance before we can be free of it. And that's an insult to the strength and the power of what Jesus does when he grabs hold of us and begins to free us. Because what Jesus takes hold of, he never lets go of. I mean, our grip may loosen, but we're we're like a a young child. You know, if you've had a young child walking in traffic and they may get loose on the grip, but boy, you, you clamp down. You don't let go of your child. And this is the grip of Jesus. He, he does not let go of us. So Paul says, I, I press on then to take hold of that. The very reason Jesus took hold of me, I press on to take hold of that. Well, what is that again? Well, it's freedom from our sin. So Paul says, I, I keep pressing on. I keep putting effort into accepting the forgiveness for my own sin. And, and I move on past my guilt. If I keep wallowing in the past, if I keep feeling guilty about the past, I'm I'm basically saying that what Jesus did for me isn't enough and his grip isn't strong enough 
to really break me from the past and forgive me for the wrong that I've done. But I also press on to get better and better at offering the same kind of forgiveness that I've been offered to other people who have wronged me. You see, it makes no sense for me with one hand to be reaching out to accept the forgiveness of Jesus and with the other hand hitting someone else who's done me something wrong. Those are contradictory moves. And so as I'm reaching out for Jesus, I'm, I'm reaching down and offering forgiveness to people who have done wrong to me. I'm making the same move that, to others that has been done for me. Now, forgiving is not an easy thing to do. Accepting the forgiveness of Jesus in our lives is not an easy thing to do. The guilt naturally keeps wallowing up if it was something significant especially. And forgiving others for the wrong they've done to us is not something that is just easy to be done. That's why Paul calls it straining forward. It's no effort to look back and live in the past. That, that happens naturally. If you're going to choose to keep accepting forgiveness and keep offering forgiveness for the past sins that have been done to you and the past sins that you've done, it, you're going to have to strain to do that. You're going to have to keep working at letting go of the past. But not only is it the past sin that drags us down, the second thing that drags us down in the past is the past patterns of our life. You see, sin is, is rarely just an isolated incident. It usually comes in groups, and over time it forms itself into patterns of life, ways of living. In Philippians 3.17, the very next verse, Paul says this, Join with others in following my example brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Why is this so important? Well, it's because every decision that we make in life adds up to form patterns of our lives. And those patterns are not all neutral. That's because our sin and the sin that has been done to us are woven into the patterns of our life. We, we choose our patterns in part based on how people have treated us and how we've been wronged. And Jesus came not just to forgive us for our past sin, but to free us from the patterns that were generated by that sin. And that requires that we learn an entirely new set of patterns. And we can't learn these new patterns just by choosing them. We can't learn them all by ourselves. And that's because patterns are learned primarily by example. We observe the patterns of another person's life, and we decide to adopt the whole thing or part of that pattern. This is what happens to us as we grow up. We observe our parents. We observe our siblings. We observe our friends. Eventually, we form heroes. Some we know, some we don't know. Some are real, some are not real. But we observe patterns of these people's lives, and then we decide which ones we want to reject, which ones we want to accept given the challenges of our current situation, given our own personalities, and we begin to adopt and mix and match, and we eventually come up with a, a pretty defined set of patterns, how we approach different areas of life, how we handle money, how we approach conflict, how we do relationships, how we relate to the opposite sex, what we think of God. All these different things are patterns, ways that we respond, because life is too complex to, for every time you see something, you, it's a brand new experience for you. I mean, you develop patterns of driving. You develop patterns, you know, the way you work. So we, we, this is the way our life is. And we learn these patterns by example. Patterns for us are not just a multiple choice question where we, we are given all of these options. We say, yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to approach conflict this way. This is the pattern for me. No, 
we saw it in somebody else. And either we chose, we didn't want to do that, we want to do the opposite of it, or we thought, you know, that's the way I want to do that pattern. That's the way I want to handle conflict. And we learn our patterns that way. The problem with, with us over time is that sin is woven into our patterns because we're in a fallen world and we have sinful hearts. So most of our patterns in life don't line up with the way God says we should actually do that part of life. This past week, my wife and I went to a James 1 party. Now, I did not grow up going to James 1 parties. In fact, the first time I heard that phrase, uh, I had the same response that you're having right now. What in the world is a James 1 party? I'd never heard of it either. Well, it comes out of a set of verses in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and here's what they say. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, you know, the ability to endure, Perseverance must finish its work so that you can be, may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I first heard about a James 1 party when someone in the church that I was a part of was going through a difficult time, and so they decided to gather friends together and have a party and actually consider it joy. I'd never heard of such a thing. I'd read this verse before. I was aware that we're supposed to consider it pure joy, but... Honestly, who does that? I mean, who really honestly, whenever life gets really hard, just immediately goes, oh, I'm so excited. It's just, it's just such an opportunity for me to grow. I mean, that, that is not the pattern of almost anybody's life that I've ever met. The pattern is what? Oh, no. Or to complain or to, to get mad or to grumble about it. But you see, the pattern that Scripture says we're supposed to have is whenever hard things come, we are supposed to consider it pure joy. Now, notice the word consider. What that means is that's not going to naturally occur to us. We're going to have to put our thinking caps on. And so the idea behind a James 1 party was let's get some people together, let's put on some party hats, let's get some streamers, and let's, let's try to get our minds around why in the world this is a joyful thing. Let's, let's try to figure this out. I, I had never heard of that. It wasn't until I saw someone actually do it that I was challenged to live according to this pattern. Before that point, it was like, <laughs> that's a nice verse. <laughs> now let's go on with life. It's, yeah, it's impossible. You can't really do that. It's like, huh, look at these people. Their life is just going up in flames, and they've got party hats on. <laughs> I guess it can be done. I guess you can do this. Now, this, this has happened to me over and over again. I mean, I've also read about the pattern that God gives for the way marriage should be done and the pattern that he gives for how parenting should be done. But it wasn't until I saw people that I knew actually do these things. It wasn't until then that I was challenged to rewire my marriage and to rethink my whole, our whole approach to parenting. Up until that point, all those verses were, wouldn't that be amazing if someone could do that? And then I saw someone do it and I thought, huh, a, I'm supposed to do it, and B, I think I might be able to do that. I think I could learn how to do that. So I started to do those patterns. And I could go on and on and on and on about the patterns that God says in Scripture. You see, if you call out for Jesus to save you and pull you out of the pit, he will do that. He will grab a hold of your hand and begin to pull. But if you don't join, as it says here, with others in following an example of how to do this and, and live according to the pattern that you see other Christians doing who are really trying to do this stuff, 
then you're just going to keep getting pulled back into the same old familiar patterns of your past. Because it's, it's what you know. It's, it's who you are automatically without even thinking about it. Anything else just seems impossible. Now, if you don't ever learn to live according to the patterns that Scripture says as you observe the examples of other people, now Jesus won't let go of your hand, but this life is going to be a whole lot worse and a whole lot harder than it has to be because you're not living according to the patterns that really free you from sin. So these are the two two areas that you need to let go in the past. You need to let go of the past sin, both the sin that you've done and the sin that's been done to you. And then you need to, over time, learn new patterns so you can let go of the past patterns of your past in order to move forward. So that's how you forget the past. Do forget the past. But then the second one is don't forget the prize. This is the forward gaze. The first part is don't turn your head around and get distracted about what's behind you. And the second part is don't get your eyes off of the prize. This is why Paul says in verse 14 again, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that the Christian life is a competition and the very best Christian throughout all of history does get to go to heaven and see Jesus and everyone else, well, sorry, thanks for entering, but you didn't, you didn't win, so you don't get to make it. No, that's not the point here. The point here is the prize for everyone who follows Jesus is to see him face to face and to be changed in this life as we move forward into the next. That's the prize. That, that's what our eyes need to be fixed on. Now, I saw what Paul was talking about years ago in this verse when uh, my daughter was in, uh, swimming in a race. She was probably seven or eight at this time. And, you know, she dove in like everyone else in the race when the starting gun went off. And just a few strokes into the race, I saw her lift her head, not to get a breath, but to see where her friend was, who was swimming a couple of lanes over from her. And I noticed that her friend was looking back at her. And then I noticed that both of them were smiling at each other. And I knew immediately neither of them was going to win that race. <laughs> Why? They, they were not, their gaze was not fixed on the finish line. Their gaze was fixed on each other. For them, the race was a, well, it was a party. And they were waving, you know, it's like, no, 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 swim, swim. I was yelling with everything I could and it, you know, their, their gaze was not fixed on the prize. So there was no way they were going to win that race. Now, this kind of thing that Paul is talking about and that I observed that day happens to us in life very easily. We, we decide, we realize that, that we need to follow Jesus Christ, and so we begin to do that, and then something begins to distract us. And we begin to look over at something else. Now, we're not looking back, we're just kind of looking over here and we're kind of looking over there, and we're maybe looking maybe just five degrees off over here. And it really begins to cause all kinds of problems. We get distracted by something here, and we forget the prize. We forget the purpose of our life. We forget why it is that Jesus grabbed hold of us and what we are supposed to be living for. And that's why Paul goes on in the next verse, in verse 18, to say this, For, as I have often told you before, and now I say again, even with tears. Paul's broken up about this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands of those here who consider themselves to be enemies, I'm not going to, but if I ask for a show of hands of those who consider themselves to be enemies of the cross, I, I'm pretty sure no one, no one would raise their hands. Why? Well, this is the church, right? 
Now, you may not believe this. Maybe you're here just investigating, trying to figure out what this all means, and that's great. We're so happy you're here. But I, I doubt that someone who really is an enemy of the cross would, would decide to spend an hour on a Sunday morning doing this. So this must be talking about other people, right? Well, but you see, this verse was written to a church. Not about people outside the church. It was written to people in the church. Like us, they had declared their allegiance to the cross of Christ. But notice, Paul didn't say that, you know, with, with all his tears, he didn't say that they were, in fact, enemies of the cross. He said that they were living as enemies of the cross. They were living like enemies. What that means is they had declared their allegiance to Jesus, but the pattern of their lives hadn't changed. The pattern of their lives was in opposition to him. It was as if Jesus hadn't taken hold of them at all. You see, in this life, there is no such thing as a neutral life when it comes to Jesus. I mean, either you and I are making progress and we have our gaze fixed on the goal and we're beginning to change and the patterns of our life are changing and we're moving forward or we're, we're living like enemies. We're, we're living off of something else. Something else has captured our eye. Now, how could Paul tell that people in this church were living as enemies of the cross of Christ? How, how, how could he tell? Well, he could tell what their prize was. You see, a prize is, is what you're living for. It's, it's what you organize your life around. And whatever your prize is, if it's Jesus or if it's something else, it always shows up in two ways. Not what you say your prize is, but what your prize actually is. Always shows up in two ways. The first is, it's the thing that dominates your mind. So the question we have to ask ourselves over and over again is, what is it that's dominating my mind? What, what is the prize that, that, that my mind is is fixated on. The next verse, verse 19, Paul describes what's dominating the mind of the person who's living as an enemy of the cross. He says their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. In summary, their mind is on earthly things. There, there's, there's something on this earth that for them is the prize. And the way you can tell it is that's what their mind's fixed on. It dominates their thoughts. The prize is, is here. There's something here on this earth that's caught their attention. Now, heaven is nice, and they definitely want to go there, but what really matters to them most is something here. You can just tell by the way they make their decisions. It doesn't mean it's the only thing they think about, but it means it's the most important thing they think about. And so it affects the way they make their decisions. They they orient all of, all of their life around getting at this thing that they want. It's something here on this earth. It's not Jesus. It's something here. And Paul says what's really true then is their God is their stomach. What does a stomach do? It gets hungry. Why? Because it has an appetite. What is a God? Well, whatever your God is is another way of saying it's your top priority. It's, it's your number one. It's the central organizing goal around which all of your money and your time and your resources and your thoughts go towards. So if your stomach is your God, as Paul says here, it means that your appetites, the, the things that you desire, are driving your decision-making. 
your, your time and your money and everything about you orients around your appetites. Now, this is not talking about food. It's talking about desire in general. And the image that's being described here is, is that this world is one giant buffet of desires. I mean, it is. Now, if you go to a big giant buffet, there, there's, there's sections that maybe you know, don't, you're, not, you're not interested in. Maybe don't like the sushi section. But there's the other section, you know, the pizza section, or the bread section, or the omelet section. Or there's other sections that, oh, that would be great. And that's the way this life is. There's just, just a smorgasbord, a, a buffet of desires. And, and people line up to, you know, to get those things. It, 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 it's their desire, and boy, they, it's about almost all they can really think about. But the destiny of this buffet is, as Paul says here, destruction. Their destiny is destruction. That's because everything on the table one day will be destroyed. And in that day, the things that we prized and spent years getting, if they were on this table, will suddenly go from shiny oohs and ahs to dust, nothing. And if we had made them our gods, if they had become our prize, our number one, in that day, it will be so embarrassing for us to have spent so much time and so much money and so much thought on something that means absolutely nothing. That's what it means here. Their, their glory is their shame. What used to be the things that, <gasps> and everyone would look to and say, yeah, that's amazing. Now they're going to be things that just, oh, there'll be a, 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 just a, a horrible, I can't believe. I can't believe. I spent decades and in the lion's share of my life going after this stuff. It, it'll, be a, it'll be an eternal embarrassment. So does that mean that we can't have anything on the table? No, I mean, we do need to eat actual food and, in this life, and we, and we do have jobs that we got to think about. It requires our brains. So are we just supposed to think of nothing but Jesus and heaven because that's our prize? No. The problem isn't that we have a stomach. The problem isn't that there are things in this world that we want. The problem is we make them our number one. And the way you can tell if it's your number one is God gets the leftovers. God gets the leftovers of your time. He gets the leftovers of your money. He gets the leftovers of whatever you're focused on. Because our thought is, once I get this, then I can do this, this, and this. But this is the prize. Paul says the only way to describe that is you, you are, in fact, living as an enemy. Not just a neutral party to the cross. Not just, hey, let me take a little break from Jesus and go pursue this. You're living as an enemy of the cross. So it shows up in what dominates your mind. It also shows up in where your Savior is from. Let me explain what I mean by this. A prize is, is also something that we believe will really rescue us or, or save us. Another way to say it is that if I get this, or if this situation happens and comes together, then life as I want it to be will suddenly come together. I will, I will be saved. The life I want will occur. The question is, where's your Savior from? Here or there? Philippians 3, 20-21, the next two verses say this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await, not just past time, 
But we eagerly await a Savior from where? From there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So if you're wondering where your Savior is really located, here's the test. The Savior locator test is endurance. That's endurance. That's the Savior locator test. What I mean by that is if your Savior is from here, the length of the time that you will press on doing what is right is limited. That's because eventually you're going to give up when it looks like the things that you really want in this life are not going to work out. But if, on the other hand, your citizenship is in heaven, that's where home is. You understand that I'm never going to be really comfortable and it's never going to be all put together until I'm home. And you're not home yet. And you're eagerly awaiting a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then if Jesus comes through for you in this life, if things work out for a period of time in this life, great. That's not a problem. But if not, you're still going to press on. Why? Well, this isn't home anyways. You're a citizen of heaven. And your Savior has promised that no matter what happens in this life, in the next life, what's going to happen? He's going to bring everything, it says, under his control. Now, everything's under his control now, but what happens in heaven is it will be obvious that everything's under. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of things right now God's letting go so that people have the space and the room and the freedom to decide to follow him. But when this life is over, in the next life, he's going to bring everything under his control. And he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's the prize. So even if our life is just one big, giant mess and struggle, we will endure. Because our Savior is from there and not from here. We'll press on. Now, I think it should be clear by this point, if if you're looking for kind of a spiritual walk in the park, Jesus is not your guy. He doesn't do that. But if you want to live a life for something that you will not be ashamed of in the end, and if you need the help of a hand that will never let go, then Jesus is your Savior. He's the one you're looking for. Only he can pull us out of the past and free us from our past sinful patterns, the wrong that we've done, the wrong that's been done to us. Only he can save us now and for all of eternity. But until that day, there's one thing. Isn't this this great? Here's the one thing. Just one thing. If you want to start somewhere, start with the one thing. Here's the one thing that you need to do. Forgetting what's behind and straining, straining toward what's ahead. You must press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to put the picture of these runners back up on the screen here. And I want you to notice something in these guys. Notice the strain on their face and in their bodies. There is a stadium full of distraction in this race. But they, they can't risk even a glance off to the side, let alone over their shoulder. They, 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 can't, they can't afford to look back at all. Their minds may be thinking, what is going on behind me? But they, they can't turn around. But they got to keep pressing forward. They have to focus their thoughts and their efforts on the next step and push with everything they have. Now, the race in this picture is a sprint. 
But the race that Paul refers to, the terminology that he's using, he's really describing a marathon. This was the common Olympic race of his day. And it's not until you run a long, long distance that you really will experience what runners refer to as the wall. Now, obviously, it's not a physical wall, but it sure feels like it. It feels like you, you can't take another step. But you can, in fact, take another step. Those of you that run, how, how do you push through that wall? Well, you just push, right? You, you just take the next step. You just keep taking the next step. Many times in this life, maybe in this week, you're going to be at the end of your emotional strength, and your mind will be screaming, I cannot, I can't take another step. I can't press forward in this job. I can't press forward in this marriage. I, I can't press forward in this parenting challenge. Whatever it is, I, 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 you're just going to feel like quitting. But you see, you can. With the help of Jesus, you can take the next step. We, we press on, not by taking every step, but just by taking the next right step, by deciding, okay, what is, what is the next right thing for me to do? And, to, and do that. And then what's the next right thing for me to do? And then do that. That's how we press on, with the help of Jesus. Now, one of the ways that, that we're pressing on as a church right now is in the way that we're getting ready for Easter. This is just something practical that you can be a part of. I don't know if you know this, but Easter is five weeks away. And if we do absolutely nothing, guess what's going to happen in five weeks? Easter will arrive, right? Time will march on and Easter will be here. But this life is not a walk in the park. Eternity hangs in the balance for many in our community. So, so we want to lean into the tape as Easter approaches. And that's why we've, we've got this insert in the program for you. I just want to draw your attention to. Uh, this one that shows our service times on the, on the front. And on the back, there's a number of ways that you can get involved. But you notice on the top, there, there's three specific categories. It says, prepare your campus. This is one of the ways that we're getting ready for Easter. Number two, prepare your heart. It's critical for you to be a part of this with, at a heart level. And then invite others. So on the back of your connection card, I want you to take a look at that real quick. I want to point out some specific ways that you can be a part of some Easter opportunities. And these are just listed in the dates, uh, in order of date. But first of all, you can be a part of our grocery bag outreach on March 12th. Now, what we do then is we just simply go to area markets and we give out our, our, our uh, grocery bags that says Seabreeze Church on it. People, people love this. This is not a negative thing. So you can help us be part of that. Just check that box. Let us know you want to be a part of, of helping us lean into the future, lean into Easter with this. Or we're also going to have a campus cleanup day on March 19th. In the morning, start around 8 o'clock or so, go to probably 1 o'clock. You can be here for one hour. You can be here for the entire morning. You've probably noticed all of the work that we're doing to get ready uh, for Easter, but there's going to be a lot of projects beyond some of this bigger construction that's being done. So you can help us on March 19th. Just check that box. This is, this is a way you can prepare your heart. Be a part of the Good Friday service on March 25th. That'll be 7 o'clock here in the auditorium. Come here and and prepare together with us, prepare our hearts uh, for Easter. And the next one is the volunteer for the Huntington Beach City Easter Egg Hunt, March 26th. This is the Saturday before Easter. City of Huntington Beach puts on a huge um, Easter egg hunt thing in Central Park over there. So we help out with that. We've got a booth. It's a way for us to, to invite people to come to Seabreeze, so you can help out with that. And then this is the most important one, invite others to the Easter service on March 27th. 
God has put people in your life, either neighbors, friends, coworkers, someone you will meet this afternoon. And all it's going to take is for you to ask them, hey, are you going somewhere on Easter for church? And if they say no, say, well, would you like to? If they say yes, then you know where to invite them. If they're going somewhere else, they say, that's great. Let, let them go there. Don't try to convince them, no, this is a better church. No, no, no. But begin to pray about and then take opportunities in the next five weeks uh, to, to invite people to come here on the 27th. So we have been called forward, not into the past, to lean forward, to strain forward and forget what's behind. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for taking hold of us. We, um, we do not have the power to pull ourselves out of, our, out of our past sin, out of the wrong that's been done to us, out of the patterns that we've learned and now seem so automatic we don't even think about it. Only your grip could hold on to us and only your grip could begin to pull and free us from the sins of our past and begin to change the patterns of our future but we so easily are distracted by the past. Either the guilt just keeps bringing, bringing itself back up or uh, the wrong that someone does keeps coming back in our minds and, and we orient ourselves, we look around, we, we begin to forget the prize. We begin to forget focusing on the future. So we ask that you would, you would help us and you would strengthen us to, to press on to the future. And Jesus, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. Help us identify whatever it is that's competing for you as number one in our hearts, whatever else, whatever shiny thing or interesting thing is distracting us so that we can strain towards you the prize and not something else. We ask for your help. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.